Have you ever taken a rock and rolled it over and be shocked about what you find? Well, in this case, we're going to do that with the issue of affordable housing. Affordable housing is critical to our lives. And in Canada, we've got big problems. So today, we're going to dig deep into what that issue is about and what are the solutions. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Today, we're going to talk about housing affordability in Canada. It's a crisis in many markets in our country. And with me here today are two esteemed guests to talk about this issue. The first one is Wendell Cox, a senior fellow with the Frontier Institute, and also a founding uh, senior fellow with the Urban Reform Institute. And secondly, I have Charles Blaine, the president of the Urban Reform Institute and an expert on housing affordability. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you because this topic of housing affordability is very important. So I'm going to ask a really basic question. What do we mean by housing affordability, Wendell? Well, we mean housing that is affordable to middle income people. If we go back to 1971, the the 1971 Canadian census, if you look at the metropolitan areas that were included in the census question, the highest um, price to income ratio, we call it the median multiple, the highest price to income ratio was about 3.9 in Vancouver and Toronto was very similar. That is the house prices, the median house price was almost four times the median household income. Today in Vancouver, the CMA, it's 12. Sorry, what's the CMA? What does that mean? Census metropolitan area. That's, okay. That's, that's Canada's, that, that's stats Canada term for metropolitan area. Um, the um, um, and, and in Toronto, the Toronto CMA also, the metropolitan area, it's 9.5. So that's telling us that in 50 years, the price of housing relative to incomes has tripled or more. Now, there's no reason for that. Cars haven't tripled, haven't done that. Food hasn't done that. Nothing else. And, and essentially what's happened is we have, have seen a regulatory structure applied in our two largest metropolitan areas, Toronto and Vancouver, as well as Montreal and some other places, and, and basically destroyed housing affordability. And I would urge, I would suggest indeed that the housing affordability crisis has created a cost of living crisis. And I can go into more detail on that, okay, but that's so, sort of the beginning. So the, the punchline is that you're saying the price of housing has skyrocketed essentially way faster than any other cost in our life. And regulations basically have created that problem. Is that right, uh, Charles? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, and, and what's interesting is, you know, there's always this conversation about affordable housing and housing affordability. And instead of what we see in a lot of local governments, they levy these regulations that drive up costs and erode housing affordability. And instead of addressing those regulations, they then shift to affordable housing and try to subsidize the housing that they mm. are providing um, and have people become dependent on that supply rather than doing the things that can actually address the cost of living. So I think Wendell's 100% 
correct. Um, you know, we see it all across where, I, where I'm based at Houston and, and all across Texas um, and the United States. We see local governments loving heavy handed regulations that are just driving up the cost of living. OK, so the bottom line is that, you know, it's interesting when I bought my first house, it was about two and a half times my income at the time. It was wonderful. I could buy this wonderful house. It was on like a, a quarter of an acre. It was a lovely home. And, you know, it's just shocking what that price of that same house is today. And that's in the Waterloo area. That's where I bought my my first home. And it, so what's changed then? Why has this become such a train wreck? Not in all, but most Canadian markets, people can't even buy a home. It's ridiculous. It's very simple. And it goes back to London 1947 with the British Town and Country Planning Act. The view that we must stop urban sprawl. Urban sprawl is worse than anything, okay? And to do it, we're going to draw a line around the city and not allow development to occur on the outside. And we created a terrible problem. It's so the wait, same. Wait, wait, you said draw a line? Like, what do you mean? Like a law? That says you can't. Yeah, you cannot. You, you you cannot develop outside the periphery of the that the planning agency or the or an often oftentimes the provincial government has established. Now this happened. The start in Canada was Vancouver in the early 1970s, and at that point, the median multiple, the price to income ratio, was about four in Vancouver. It's now, as I say, twelve, three times. You have people, young people can't afford houses. They can't afford rents. Yeah. It's incredible. No, it's, it's, it's rather, yeah, it's it's like when the, when OPEC decides they're not going to ship any more oil. Now, you all aren't old enough to remember the 70s, but I remember a weekend in Los Angeles when two gas stations were open in the whole metropolitan area, when the price of gasoline was going up because it was being rationed. And that's the problem here. And what we find is at these the, these um, these boundaries, they're urban growth boundaries. They're sometimes called green belts, or they're called agricultural reserves. You find that the land price goes up eight to twenty times, so, so that all of us all of a sudden the principal issue in house construction and value is not the construction; it's the land. So to paraphrase Shakespeare, we've seen the enemy, and it's us. Like it's like government, we're shooting our own. Like it's a horrible analogy, but we're we're making the problem. Is that right, Charles? Like we've got we've gone overboard on these zoning bylaws to try to control all the land use, and you know everybody cares about good land use and the environment, but we've gone overboard. Is that right, Charles? Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and you can see that all over. I mean, I, I Wendell makes a great point about these urban growth boundaries. And even in areas where we don't have kind of hard and fast rules for gr urban growth boundaries, you still you still see this discouraging effect of trying to keep people inside of, a, of an area. I mean, just outside of Austin, Texas, the capital of Texas, um, our, our counties aren't allowed to regulate the same way that cities are. So a lot of development happens in what's called the unincorporated area of the county. But in Austin, what we see is that the city then started buying up land outside of the city and saving it for environmental usages so that people then could not build residential development. Wait, you're saying that the city, this sounds like many Canadian <laughs> cities, they buy up the land so people can't live there. Yep. So then yep. the price goes up. It's not complicated, and right? artificially inflating the price and, and they hold on to it and you know they put preserves there and all these other things which is very nice but what they're doing is they're trying to keep people inside of these cities which is driving up the costs and i mean we see it in, in all of
cities here in Texas, but it's certainly across the country. Um, and, and, you know, I think Wendell hits the nail on the head with the urban growth boundary. So, so why are these decision makers doing it? Like I, I get socialism. They want to control everything. They want to control, you know, uh, what gas, what kind of, you know, car you drive, what kind of gas stove you use. Um, like it, it's just unbelievable. They want to control everything. They want so in this case, they're trying to control every house that you live in. Whether you you know you you stack people up in these tiny condominiums that you would never raise a family in. Um, but that's is that what's driving this essentially? Well, actually, you know, these people, these planners, okay, yeah. they they do have good intentions. They think they're in, they're improving the city. Right. And the interesting thing is a lot of places in Canada and in the United States, Australia, around the world, uh, they've established uh, provisions to expand these urban growth boundaries so that they don't create this housing affordability mm-hmm. problem. But they always seem to forget to do that. Right. And, and, and they don't study economics. Uh, you know, uh, Alain Berteau, who was a principal planner in the World Bank for, for years, Uh, has written a book in which he says the principal problem we have is that the planners do not look at economic impacts. It's not taught in the in in the in the planning schools or anything. So it's a real problem. They think they're improving the city. In my view, you can judge the success of a city by how well off its people are. And if if its people are paying the kind of prices you're paying in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, it's not a successful city. So you have a group of people we're talking a very tiny number, like it's like a 1% kind of thing that are driving these decisions as kind of utopian perspective, right? And they, you know, I'm sure many of them have very good intentions, obviously, but they are making a mess out of housing in our country, aren't they? I, I don't Absolutely. like is that a fair comment, Charles. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's intent is great. They I I do think many of them have good intent, but they refuse to look at the outcomes of the policy that they support. And they refuse to take that into consideration and and dare to question if the policy that they're supporting are actually um, helping the people that they intend to help. And I think you said something really interesting, which is that it's a small one percent of people. And it is. I mean, it's their squeaky wheels. So they get the oil, but they really are one percenters and kind of the grander sense as well, because these are people who can afford to purchase or, or rent mm-hmm. um, in, in these places. And what they're doing is they're eroding the affordability for those who cannot afford to. The people who do need those those you know median priced homes and still need the opportunity that they were able to take advantage of years ago. And so they're really kind of ma- majorly focused on their intent, but they refuse to acknowledge that the outcomes aren't, aren't what they should be. I know that no one has a crystal ball, Wendell and Charles, but if you had to kind of predict where things are at, are they going to get much worse? Are we going to see people lose their homes? Like inflation, core inflation is still at a relatively high level. Um, I haven't seen the, the stats just recently in the United States, but certainly in Canada, our, our core inflation is still relatively high and we'll probably see interest rates creep up still more. I, I'm really concerned about, is it going to get worse? Well, yes, yes, indeed, it's going to get worse. I mean, first of all, even without the interest rate charges, the demand far exceeds the supply. And, and, and so long as the demand exceeds the supply, the cost of housing is going to rise faster than incomes. However, you've got a different situation in Canada than we have in the United States with your renewable loans. You know, you, you probably have to go in to get a new loan every five mm-hmm. years or so. And when you do that, your interest rate is going to be the prevailing rate. 
One of the fortunate things we have in this country, in the United States, is the 30-year loan. So right. if you sign up today for a loan at 5% or whatever it happens to be, uh-huh. you've got that loan for 30 years. And you, aren't gonna, you don't need to worry about the, the interest rates going up. And so in Canada, yeah, I believe you, of course, are going to see people lose their homes as a result of when they readjust their mortgage. But beyond that, the bigger, longer-term issue is that young people and immigrants, and you have a strong pro-immigrant policy. Uh, Trudeau is talking about significantly increasing the immigration, the the skilled immigration from places like like India and China. Um, and 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 where are those people going to live? They're not. Where gonna are they going to live? I don't know. I don't know. There's not enough houses being built, uh, are there? So is it going to get worse? So Charles, what do you think? Well, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, and, and, you know, right now in Texas, the legislature is in session and they're kind of combating this property tax reform proposal, two different proposals from from the chambers of the Texas legislature. But what they're focusing on is the increase in appraisal costs, particularly in the major cities and how appraisals have just skyrocketed in recent years. And I think that's what we're still seeing. I mean, certainly in Houston, and that is in large part because they are, and I think Houston less than some other cities, but in large part because they are forcing, they're, they're creating this false scarcity of land. When you could still be able to build out, you're forcing them to build in. And what you're seeing now is the appraisals go up. And so we have a lot of folks who are complaining about their appraisal costs, which then feed into their property taxes. And when they can't bear that burden anymore, then it just becomes something that they have to give up as well. And so I I think we're going to have that problem. And I think a lot of state legislatures in the United States are trying to figure out how to address that. But I don't know that they're addressing it fast enough because this, this cabal of urban planners, they're very very effective at the local level and they're getting gains day by day while the state legislatures are, are taking a little longer to catch up. Okay. So just to recap then, because this is, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in this, but it's almost like a dog chasing its tail. You restrict the land because it's not so much the housing cost that's going up here. This is for me and a very important insight about this issue. It's the land. It's not so much the housing cost, right? And it's because government is restricting that land use. It's driving the price up. Like it's like a bubble, right? But in the meantime, another important revelation is that not all cities are a train wreck here. Like you've got the obvious ones in Canada and uh, the United States, like, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, and and uh, others jurisdictions where, where they're, they are really, really bad. And they're just going to get worse. But who's doing it right? If you look at Canada and the United States, who's doing Who gets it? Uh, Like, is there anyone who said, wow, we actually need to supply land so people can actually build houses for people to what? Oh, yeah, live. Well, you know, unfortunately, nobody's doing it right because they thought about doing it right. And I, I, okay, and that's as true as in, in the United States as it is in Canada. People always ask me that question. I say, look to Kansas City, look to Texas, uh, look to Winnipeg, Calgary, and, right. and Edmonton, yes. even though they, they have some real bad policies, but but they haven't taken it uh, so far. But this issue of the cost of the houses is incredible. You think about, you know, how you think about right now with respect to Vancouver, where the median multiple is about 12, and compare that to Winnipeg, where the median multiple is Just about four. I want people to understand that. So in Vancouver, approximately... It's 12, 12, the, the cost 12 of times, the house is 12 times your income. That's crazy. That's right. No pre, one can afford that. Pre, pre-tax income. Um, and it's four times in, in, in Winnipeg. Now, granted, that's a little high, but not terrible. Now, right. you know what? You can build a house in Winnipeg for maybe 20% mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, less than in Vancouver. It is not the you can almost build the same house in Vancouver as you can in Winnipeg, okay, mm -hmm. or anywhere else in Canada, because mm -hmm. the cost of housing does not change because it's a construction and national market. So that's a big deal. All right. So is anyone doing any incisive solutions to this? Because at the heart of this is is government itself not opening up enough land. So is anyone starting to, you think, realize that that's the solution? Like in Toronto, for instance, we had the imposition of a, quote, green belt. So who's going to argue against a green belt? Except they were that that's just what really created the, the housing crisis in that community. Now, right. I hear that the provincial government, namely Premier Doug Ford, is looking at um, adjusting that a little bit, but he's under incredible criticism. I know we've applauded that decision because you need land for people to to live. So is that a solution, Wendell, in your mind? Well, absolutely. And I've been very pleased with some of the proposals out of the Ford government because uh, they really do realize you've got to make land um, available. Uh, in terms of anything that really is happening of substance, I'm very pleased to report that the premier of South Australia, a laborite, mind you, um, is basically saying we've got to make we've got to make housing with yards available for for families. This guy's gone further than anybody I've seen anywhere in the world. The and my concern is as I may I, I should mention that you know right now in Canada your metropolitan areas are losing populate are, are losing migrants to the rest of the country. The fastest growing parts of Canada are rural at this point. That's incredible. Never has happened like that well, for years. Can you repeat that? Well, the fastest that. growing parts of Canada are outside the metropolitan areas and the census agglomerations. The census agglomerations have urban have, have 10,000 and above, okay? The fastest growth is in places below 10,000, and that includes, obviously, much of the, um, much of the, uh, of the, the rural area. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that, that has changed uh, very significantly at this point. Wow. The point is, though, that now, as you all as Canadians know, the Maritimes and the Atlantic provinces, including Newfoundland, have not grown very fast. Nobody moves there. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Over the last five years, one of the leading importers of people from central Canada was Halifax, Nova Scotia, a beautiful community as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, and you have people beginning now to move to, to eastern Canada. The problem is, however, we my concern is we need to make sure that the public officials in that part of the country don't don't impose these kinds of policies because those policies have been imposed in places like Kitchener, Waterloo and Peterborough and Kingston and so on. And their housing affordability has become almost as bad as Toronto now because they have the same regulations. Wow. All right. Okay. So I think that's a great summary, Wendell and uh, Charles, but I do want to, I do want to send you a curveball, and that is I could argue and I can hear the recording in my head. You guys don't get it. What's changed is we have a climate crisis. It's existential in nature. And therefore we have to impose all these rules. And not only that, we don't have any agricultural land. We have a food security crisis. I can hear the academics saying this from the universities right now. And they're saying, you guys don't get it. And that's why we're, we, we have to impose this because we've got to save every scrap of land in North America to save the environment and save food. 
Well, first of all, in, in Canada, as in the United States, significant share of the land that used to be agricultural is not any longer. And why is that? Because you don't need it. In our country, in the United States, for example, we have taken out of agricultural production since 1950 land equal in size to the state of Texas plus the state of Washington. The, 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 the agricultural land argument is Solly Angel, NY, New York University, one of the leading urban experts, has pointed out and shown that there is no food security issue. There isn't a food security issue in Vancouver or Canada or Portland or the United States. And so, um, you know, that that really is is there. As for the climate change issue, the fact is nobody has clearly made the has clearly made the case. Um, we've got a, a, a research in Australia um, by a left wing organization, mind you, that basically showed that the greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the dense urban cores were higher than in the rural and suburban areas. Why? Because the people who lived in those areas travel a lot more, consume a lot more, etc. So, so greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the, the, you know, the 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 research that would underlie such a position have simply has simply not been done. And you know, there's a bigger issue to be thinking about here too. And you know, if it comes down to um, uh, you, you know, urban policy uh, versus poverty. I'm going to be on the side of making sure that we don't slide into poverty. And that is what we are forcing right now. The increase in the number of people that need to have affordable housing, low income housing is beyond the pale. And, and, and that's a big problem. And I think we need to focus on not forcing more people into poverty. Yeah, and on the, I think that's right. So what do you think, Charles? Well, yeah, I was going to say on the note about the environment, I think you know we, we often hear from from the, the urban planners that you need to be in this dense urban core to minimize the footprint. And that's the best thing for the environment. But when you look, you have to look to the private sector in a lot of these instances because they recognize that, that people do care about the environment and they want their products to still be sold. So look to see what they're doing. And one of the, the um, neighborhoods or communities that we looked at in a previous project we did was it's a community owned by a corporation called the Howard Hughes Corporation. Corporation. And it's the name of the community is the Woodlands. And they have a number of different communities like this. And when you look at what they do when it comes to environmental resources, whether that's, you know, collecting rainwater and kind of refiltering it to for all the, the landscaping and just different things like that, that they've built into it because they understand that the customers that they're trying to serve desire that. And also because they're a large company and actually do care about the environment, you recognize that that a lot of those issues aren't actually issues in some of these areas. And, you know, I, I like Wendell kind of mentioned before, I think idling in a car downtown for all day is going to is going to uh, be much more detrimental to the environment than having a short trip to and from somewhere you're going um, without having to deal with all of that. And so I think a lot of those arguments they want to make just to kind of continue that idea of, of compacting everyone downtown. But with new technology and with the private sector attempting to respond to a lot of these concerns, a lot of them are alleviated. You know, I think those are brilliant summaries. And surely, surely, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. It almost seems like they're creating these false dichotomies and crises and fear to say, well, you know, if you if you do if you care about the environment, you have to do it this way. When in fact, no, there's multiple considerations and you have to balance this out. But from a primary fundamental point of view, we need to have 
housing affordability. Otherwise, we don't have a future. Uh, that's how I see it. Is that a fair comment, Wendell? No, ab- absolutely. I mean, the, the cost of living is a function of housing affordability. Right now, these regulations threaten to destroy the middle class. They're certainly making it smaller. And it is amazing to me that you can't find a politician who isn't concerned about housing affordability. Canada, the United States, they all talk them. But what do they do to, to check up on it? It was Charles was talking we need to be thinking about outcomes here. We do not solve problems by passing legislation. We solve problems by passing legislation that has the intended outcome. And that is what's not happening at this point. Right on. So we need to get out of these um, this fiasco. We need to cut the regulations. We need to, um, boy, I, I think of the, the old movie Free Willy. We need to free up. Uh, the ability of the private sector to build more houses and create that supply so people can have a future. So what can we as citizens do to speak up and get at this issue? I think a lot of people feel really depressed and disempowered uh, about this issue. So what what are the actions you could do tomorrow? Um, Should they call their representative? What should they do? Well, I think, first of all, I think you hit the nail on the head. People do feel kind of depressed and and powerless about this. And that's how they want you to feel. Because if you feel that way, you're less likely to actually do something. And and I do think think it comes down to, to, first of all, paying attention to what's going on in your community, in your city, and in your state. So getting a general baseline of what is happening, what's driving the inaffordability, what's driving the, the cost of living up. But then, yes, it's being engaged with your city council members and state representatives, because those are the people making, obviously making the policies and they're currently only hearing from a very small percentage of people who are pushing these other policies that don't work. It only takes a few minutes to make a phone call or tweet or Facebook post or something and rally your community together for what you guys feel is necessary. I agree, Charles. What about you, Wendell? What should a citizen do? But I think it's real important to to try to get the public officials to look at the economics. They're not doing that. They don't even engage with us. You know, they, 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 they have all sorts of little ideas that, that they think are going to solve the problem. And the fact is, unless you get at the problem of the cost of land, there's nothing you can do. Um, you know, if you think about the way a housing market works at that urban growth boundary, the price goes up like that. Now, we could make some zoning changes up here, but you know what? We still got that. And, and that's the big issue. Thank you so much. Wendell Cox, Senior Fellow at Frontier and also with the Urban Reform Institute and the President of the Urban Reform Institute, Charles Blaine, for joining us. Thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.